Hello and welcome. This is a podcast of UkraineWorld.org, a website about Ukraine in English. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a host of Ukraine World podcast. And today we'll be talking about the world which we'll be living in after the pandemic and what is the Ukraine's place in it. My guests are Pavlo Klimkin, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine from 2014-2019 and actually the head of the European Regional and Russian Studies Program at the Ukrainian Institute for the Future in Kyiv. And another guest is Andreas Umland, who is the general editor of the book uh, series Soviet and Post-Soviet Politics and Society at Ibidem Press in Stuttgart and the principal investigator at the Ukrainian Institute for the Future in Kyiv. Thanks so much for joining this podcast. Uh, you recently together wrote an article, excellent article, which is called Brave New World, How the Pandemic is Changing the International System and Ukraine's Place in It. We were happy to publish it on ukraineworld.org. So what's the new world? What is this brave new world we're expecting? And what's Ukrainian place in it? Pavlo, what do you think? Well, uh, the honest answer, we still don't know. It has become a kind of platitude uh, to start projecting uh, the future from where we are now. And of course, strategic thinking, uh, I would... Uh, I would even say kind of visionary thinking here is, is fundamentally critical. Is what we are definitely lacking here in our country because of the future world system, of the future reality will matter for Ukraine immensely. I would uh, probably map out a couple of points on how I see the main tendencies. The first one, I do believe that uh, so-called uh, deep globalization would be uh, a very important tendency in the future. Of course, uh, I, I can't expect uh, such a tendency to develop, uh, to unfold uh, in, the, in the short run. And uh, we need to get through, uh, through ups and downs, through uh, other crises. But I would say uh, in the mid-run, kind of 10 plus years, uh, we're going to live in a pretty different reality. And it's not mainly about politics, because uh, politics will follow, or better to say, will have to follow uh, societal and uh, technological changes. And uh, I believe we will see a number of uh, fundamental changes in uh, societal and technological paradigms. But I would expect uh, that global uh, structures, uh, let's call them global structures, global network, uh, but uh, what is important to understand with global executive uh, credentials and probably with uh, with a completely different way of financing. It could be global tax, it could be something else could emerge because uh, we clearly see that the current, uh, in current international system, the system we, we inherited from the post-Second World War world uh, is not adequate. We, uh, as Ukrainians, uh, we saw it quite clearly in uh, 2014. And we have now a fundamental contradiction even uh, in the set of rules and the statute of the United Nations. 
we can't uh, simply define uh, Russia as, a, as an aggressor state because Russia sits in the, in the Security Council. We have a couple of uh, really fundamental problems here. The second point, uh, I do see that in the future, an approach uh, to sovereignty could be changed. Uh, it does not mean that sovereign countries uh, won't exist. Uh, no worry, but uh, I believe that the whole uh, approach to sovereignty would be simply different because uh, this system uh, inherited uh, again from the post-World War II could uh, cooperate effectively and would cooperate effectively with different uh, effective and flexible networks, uh, networks of, of knowledge and, and values. And for me, these two points, knowledge and, and values, and especially combination interlinked between knowledge and values, is something which would define of the future of the future world order and uh, a way uh, of uh, how we will live, uh, so to say, in the next reincarnation uh, of the world order. It's, of course, uh, also critically important that uh, societal and educational and uh, health habits uh, will have to change. We will uh, have to care about our immunity. We are talking now a lot about base immunity. We will have to care about uh, health in a completely different way. We will exercise probably in a different way with a different focus. Uh, education uh, will become key and it's something where Ukraine is lagging behind. And of course, uh, the whole way how our society operates in the future, we still have uh, a pattern uh, of different identities, including European identity, post-Soviet identity, simply coinciding. And the idea is simply to freeze these identities is definitely a wrong one. So uh, a number of tendencies which, uh, as I believe, as Andreas believe, uh, should uh, change uh, the way how we live, we change uh, our perception about uh, what is important in our lives, uh, what uh, actually added value, not in a purely economical uh, sense, mean. And Andreas and myself, uh, we, we also plan uh, to write a couple of follow-up articles uh, to go uh, deeper, to have a kind of in-depth uh, thinking about uh, different issues uh, we've mentioned in our, in our first article. And I believe it's also critically important for Ukraine to create a network of people uh, simply you know, triggering a kind of discussion about how Ukraine uh, should adjust uh, to the future. Here, it's, uh, it's probably, again, a platitude to say our place in the future as a nation, as, uh, as people, as a country, is not guaranteed just because of our mere existence. We have to get better. We have to get more adaptive. And uh, we have to get bolder in the sense of building up our, our institutions. Because uh, if you see the first uh, experience from tackling, from managing a coronavirus crisis, uh, it's about institutions. It's about uh, viable and rockable and effective institutions uh, 
we should be the central part of uh, of any society. So I believe the discussions should uh, should focus on all these uh, issues. Let's move uh, to to you, Andres. Pavlo mentioned the international system, which will be changing also. And you are as a as a person coming from Germany. I think Germany is one of those countries that is promoting the multilateral approach and which is very good in it inside the European Union. But do you think this multilateral approach, this accent, uh, this focus on international institutions is so, so can be so well exported out of the EU, out of Germany to the rest of the world? Well, in a way, this is the point of the article that we have there um, a descriptive part uh, and a prescriptive part. And um, unlike perhaps other analysts, we uh, have a sort of a more positive um, picture of the future in that we see here a strengthening of multilateralism, global multilateralism, um, as a result of the pandemic and the emergence of what um, Pavlo has actually called in the first draft for this article, and we have then put it in, in the article, um, deep globalism, as he called it, or, or as we call it, in that we will be seeing that the uh, so-called deep states, that means the uh, officials, the bureaucrats, the diplomats, the researchers of different governments are going to be more connected in a future world because the, the challenges they are facing are not national, but global. And we basically welcome this, what we call uh, deep globalism, this emergence of sort of epistemic communities that would have not just an international but but global dimension. Of course, that already exists in some ways. Let's say in academia, you have these sort of uh, global communities, but this will, uh, as we expect, also now be extended to the governmental officials or the, uh, the researchers and experts that are close to governments who are um, who will be more connected uh, across borders. Uh, we also uh, prescribe here in a way that um, this uh, crisis should lead to a reset of the United Nations because as the belated reaction of the World Health Organization as one of the subunits of the United Nations organizations illustrates, this uh, structure, post-war structure, is not any longer up to, up to the tasks of today. Ukraine, as we point out in the article, has already uh, earlier learned uh, the hard way that the UN system, the current UN system, does not work. Uh, Russia, with its seat in the Security Council, is blocking basically the UN to make a contribution uh, to the solution um, of the territorial conflicts uh, that Ukraine has with, with Russia. But now the belated reaction of the World Health Organization the strange sort of interactions between the WHO and the Chinese government, they illustrate that something something has to change with the entire UN system. And perhaps there's now a chance actually to come to a reset of the structure of the UN system, not just a reform, but um, a reset of uh, the structure, which would, would make it stronger, which would sort of strengthen the supranational element in it. And uh, we even expect perhaps the emergence of something like a supranational emergency government, maybe not a sort of a world government, but a, a supranational emergency structure um, that would take over sort of global governance in times of acute crisis like this pandemic, and then would implement 
global decisions, and obviously here the candidates for for such decisions are counteracting climate change, but also um, issues uh, of global migration, of global economic crisis. This cannot be uh, perhaps solved with the world government, but with some sort of global emergency structure. I think uh, the more global crisis we will have, the more legitimate uh, such a structure will become. Andreas, I would share this, your optimistic scenario about deep globalism. I think it's it's a very good term. And I would also add from my part that, well, we, we are facing the, the first global pandemic and uh, it rather shows us that there is no other response than the global response. But let me be kind of a skeptical around it, because if you look back in other pandemics like Spanish flu or, or whatever, just at the end of the First World War, it led in the long run into kind of a more global society. But in the short run, it, it led to growing nationalism, growing authoritarianisms. Isn't it something that is going on right now as well? You mentioned China, we can mention United States, who is, which is becoming more and more isolationist. And you're, as a, as, a, as, a, as a scholar, one of the greatest scholars of far-right movements. Don't you, don't you see this trend as well? Yes, uh, and we mentioned that in the article that this sort of everybody for her or himself principle is, of course, um, nowadays, uh, during the pandemic, uh, perhaps still prevalent, and it's also strengthening these introversions uh, of national states and of also of regional organizations that will be also, as we as we've outlined in a different article together, one of the perhaps problematic uh, results of this pandemic uh, that the EU and the NATO may become more introverted and less open for for new accession. So we also see this as a danger, in fact, not just as a possible development, but danger. This will weaken the global community in its responses to such global challenges, and it will strengthen at the end, I would say, also the argument for coming to a a stronger globalism, or as we formulated there, this deep globalism and um, a reset of the UN and the creation of an, a transcontinental emergencies uh, structure. So I think there could be the backlash, but the backlash will, would only enhance in the next, uh, so to say, global crisis, the weakness of the global community. So at the end of the day, we don't know when this will happen, but at the end of the day, I think we, we will come to some some sort of global restructuring in the organizations uh, we currently have. It may be leading to new organizations or also leading to this, uh, what we call the deep globalism. Let me come back to Pavlo. Pavlo Klimkin, you were the foreign minister of Ukraine during probably the most difficult history period of Ukraine's recent history, the start of the Russian aggression, the illegal annexation of Crimea, the Minsk agreements, the, the uh, aggression, repeated aggression on the front line. It was difficult in a way to attract the world's attention to Russian aggression, but it it will become probably even more difficult right now. How Ukraine's voice can be heard right now? Firstly, the agenda has fundamentally changed. And it's going to keep changing in the future. It's, it's, it's clear. Secondly, it's really critical to be initiative to be important in this world because of ourselves, not because uh, we are representing kind of factor in any sort of uh, geopolitical juxtaposition. 
but just because of ourselves or for our let me put it a bit cynically here added value because of uh, us uh, gaining momentum in uh, changing the way how ukraine uh, operates how our society operates why we are simply important because of uh, Ukraine becoming a different reality. A kind of different approach could be that uh, we are considered uh, just uh, a factor in uh, geopolitical uh, reality. And uh, it's, it's two fundamentally different uh, ways of how Ukraine is seen and, uh, and could be seen uh, in the future because of ourselves and our place uh, in the world, because of us Ukrainians, because of uh, what we can contribute uh, here in Europe and, and globally, or because uh, we uh, could be played in uh, in different uh, multi-layer game so fundamentally it's one point and the second point politics uh, is more and more about emotion it's less and less about difficult political strategies talking about so-called deep globalization and address and myself well, we like this bit of terminology it's a point of finding out the right definition here of course but uh, any effective foreign policy should be based uh, both uh, on substance uh, and emotions. And it was my point, uh, being the foreign minister, to uh, provide our friends uh, with the right emotions about Ukraine. A clear point that uh, supporting Ukraine, uh, supporting Ukrainians, uh, fighting for values uh, is, uh, is important, uh, if you like, uh, in emotional, moral sense, and not just in the sense of, uh, of a balance of political interest. So fundamentally, these two points uh, are very important for us to get traction. Uh, we've been now suffering in, uh, in both of them, uh, and the clear reshuffle and gaining a new momentum is, is definitely critical. Pavle, it's very interesting right now that, I mean, probably in the past five years, Ukraine was justly so, of course, uh, calling the international community for assistance. But sometimes it, uh, we felt that as if Ukraine is only asking for help without being able to support others, whereas right now we see that Ukraine is trying to help Italy, it sends its Maria airplanes to other countries, and it's we don't know the future, of course, but it's, it's tackling the crisis relatively well. Do you think that it, it can increase Ukraine's place in, in the world as Ukrainian security uh, expert Hanna Schellest names it, Ukraine can be not only the consumer of security, but also provider of security in the world? Vladimir, it's two different issues. I am quite skeptical uh, about uh, what uh, Ukraine has been doing now in the sense of providing assistance uh, to change kind of global agenda and Ukraine's place in this global agenda. Yes, it's important, but it's mainly important for us uh, in the sense of understanding we, we can give and not just uh, get 
in the sense of this balance. Uh, so it's more important for us, not uh, not so important in the sense of our place in the global agenda. It's it's really my perception. Let's be honest uh, about that. But the second point, uh, and why I, I would certainly differentiate these two points, is about us really uh, trying to uh, make a real contribution to European uh, and global security. And it's about sharing information. It's about effective interaction uh, on the whole security pattern, not just military pattern. Of course, it's difficult to be active uh, in different uh, operation, uh, operations throughout the world, uh, having Russian aggression here in the country. But uh, it's a unique uh, sharing of experience. It's a unique sharing of, uh, of best practices. And of course, because of our geography, because of uh, our experience from all years of the Russian aggression, we are pretty unique. And uh, it's what I keep hearing from, uh, uh, from politicians and experts uh, around the world. Uh, but uh, to be unique is one point, uh, and to transfer so to say this unique character in something tangible, if you like, in something palpable, in the sense of contribution is something completely different. And here we need clear strategy because with all kinds of public diplomacy, it's difficult to achieve. But we also need a clear political will to realize the strategy. So two components which are missing now, but uh, it could be definitely reimbursed in the future. It's just the point of uh, setting up uh, political priorities. Let me remind our listeners that we have now our guests are Pavlo Klinkin, who is the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine from 2014-2019, and Andrea Sumland, General Editor of the book series Soviet and Post-Soviet Politics and Society at Ibidem Press in Stuttgart, both Pavlo and Andreas currently work in the Ukrainian Institute for the Future in Kiev. Andreas, let me come back to you. You are also a specialist on Russia. C- comparing Ukraine's and Russia's responses to the crisis, what can you say? How can we compare it? And do you think that the impact of the, of the pandemic on Russia will be that strong that it can ease its expansionism? I would be cautious so far to compare the handling of the crisis My preliminary impression is actually that Ukraine may be handling this better, but we we are not yet at the end of it. One can only um, draw conclusions at the end of the pandemic when when we'll have the vaccine and and some therapy. Um, But so far, it doesn't look actually, as you already mentioned, that bad with regard to the containment of the pandemic in in Ukraine, but and hopefully it will remain this way, or in, and the containment will even grow. I think for for Russia, this this pandemic has actually increased the sort of pathological aspects uh, that we had in Russia before: the aging leader, the lacking succession principle. So it's not quite clear how a new leader would be determined by whom and in which procedure, the dependence of Russia on the world energy prices and the underdevelopment of Russian small and medium businesses. And all of these already problematic aspects of the Russian socio-political system are now uh, brought to, to the fore even stronger by the, by the pandemic. 
And that's why I also think that the internal developments in Ukraine now assume an additional dimension. So Ukraine has to, as, as Pavlo mentioned, to reform and to become more attractive, both emotionally and in terms of uh, sort of rational categories, more attractive, not only to the West and to the EU and NATO and the world as a whole, but perhaps especially to, um, let's say, the people in, in Crimea and in on the Donbass, because I think the this weakening of the Russian state will actually put under question sooner or later first the Donbass issue, but even the Crimea issue. I've, I've actually have an article forthcoming in, in Ukrainian and Russian in Zerkolatizhnya and in English in, in the Atlantic Council, where, where I'm arguing that at some point Russia will itself reject uh, Crimea because it's going to be too, too much of a burden for Russia. And for that moment, then Ukraine has to be attractive not only to the EU and to NATO, but also to uh, to Crimeans, so that Crimeans will then, in the majority, be for a re- reunification. This is maybe, a, for many, this may sound as an overtly uh, optimistic scenario, but I think if you if you look at at the sort of setup of the Russian socio-economic system, with this high reliance on on energy prices and the inflexibility of the Russian political system. Uh, this all means that there will be instability and there will be simply not enough money to support all the different foreign political adventures of Russia. We saw that already that Russia is winding down its activities in Venezuela. I think similar things will happen in in Africa, in in Syria, and then um, it will also eventually come to Transnistria, Abkhazia, South Ossetia, the Donbas, and Crimea. And, And for that moment, then, uh, Ukraine has to be ready to to reintegrate effectively these these territories, and that's why the internal processes here sort of have now this additional dimension in that Ukraine has to prepare itself also internally uh, for a reintegration of these uh, of these territories into its uh, socio-economic system. Pavlo, do you share this analysis? I I think that Andreas has a point in pointing this shortages of funding, but another interpretation could be that for authoritarian regimes like Russia, the inability to cope with the internal challenges can instigate the expansion. And that's what we have, we've seen with Soviet Union and its aggression in Afghanistan during the problematic times of also the social economic development. I remember hearing you before the pandemic, where you were sharing a quite a gloomy picture saying that well, uh, Putin is has lots of plans for the upcoming years and Ukraine will face a difficult time. What's going on now? It uh, actually does not contradict your Andreas' view of the one he's uh, just mentioned. And uh, in, in the mid-run, of course, uh, Russian ability to project uh, hard power abroad uh, could be limited. Uh, we still don't know the way how the world and especially Russia are going to get out of this crisis. And what's going on now in Russia, it's a number of fundamental problems piling up. It's not just about uh, failed, uh, and for me, it's, uh, it's considerably failed uh, management of uh, coronavirus crisis. It's uh, about economy, it's about uh, health system, uh, but of course, it's also about oil prices. 
and the number of uh, mind-blowing developments with the Gulf countries. Uh, but it's also about uh, now differences differently growing uh, between central power and local powers uh, in Russia. So the fundamental point, uh, what, uh, what I've been following, at least uh, from different sources, is growing uncertainty. Growing uncertainty, it's... Uh, uh, Putin's uh, approval rating, uh, which is now, you know, uh, has, can, uh, has plummeted. So we have a number of fundamental internal challenges. And uh, what I, uh, I also observe, uh, it's difficult to find uh, simple, uh, you know, and definitely popular answer to these challenges. So I believe uh, in the short run, it's quite likely that uh, Putin and uh, the Russian leadership could uh, enter into different uh, foreign policy escapades and uh, as a way to balance uh, the mood uh, within the Russian society. And uh, it could be Ukraine, of course, and the project uh, Novorossiya, New Russia, has not been buried by the Russian leadership, definitely, it's there. And actually, Putin uh, keeps mentioning it in the sense of all kinds of this uh, famous mythology, you know, one people, Russian lands, uh, and uh, all kinds of uh, such messages. So I believe we should be extremely vigilant. Uh, and what's going on now in the sense of messages uh, coming from the occupational uh, administrations in Donetsk and Lugansk, uh, it's, uh, it's basically all confirming my point that we could be, uh, you know, getting in, uh, into a quite of uh, dangerous reality now because Putin badly needs a kind of uh, change of agenda. Putin badly needs uh, real achievements, uh, which could be sold uh, both uh, internally and externally. And uh, with the whole uh, hysteric drive uh, behind uh, trying to ease up uh, sanctions is, uh, is definitely just one example. So I believe in the short run, uh, we could face uh, very dangerous developments. Uh, for me, it could be the Eastern Ukraine, but it's the same way. And if you like, uh, you know, uh, my point, uh, it could be even more probable uh, to have something uh, in, in the south of Ukraine. Because uh, the south of Ukraine would... Uh, I mean, military escapade or kind of combination because uh, Putin could not uh, start with just uh, military stuff. Uh, it's about uh, dominance around the Black Sea. It's about uh, land corridors, both to Crimea and Transnistria and Moldova. It's, uh, it's about water to Crimea. It's about strategic dominance. It's about the whole... Uh, Novorossiya concept, uh, it's about for fundamentally destabilizing Ukraine. And uh, if you ask me, I believe that Putin uh, he could not be satisfied with uh, anything uh, except uh, breaking up Ukraine's such because uh, 
our mere existence as, uh, as democracy, it's a really kind of fundamental problem for Putin's mythology and uh, for Putin's system. So to cut it short, uh, I believe the situation could get really dangerous uh, in the short run. In the mid-run, yeah, I, I agree with, uh, with Andreas. In the mid-run, uh, Russia would enter a very difficult and painful process of uh, adapting to new realities, to a kind of place uh, Russia deserves uh, as a part of world pattern, uh, you know, demographically, economically, from, uh, from many points of view. And it would be a very different reality from now. But, uh, you know, this year, next year, and the year after, uh, it would be a very, very dangerous uh, time frame uh, for us. Not only for, uh, for us, but especially for Ukraine. Let me probably ask the last question to all of you, both Andreas and, and Pavlo, and maybe Andreas, you, you can add up uh, in responding to my question to what Pavlo said. But let me ask, is Ukraine prepared to the new challenges? Is Ukrainian, and what can this crisis tell about Ukrainian society? Because one of the interpretation is that the new world will demand even more trust. And Ukrainian society is, well, not very good at trust. So we can see it in, in the pattern of Ukrainian society. So what's your response? Andreas? First, I want to just add maybe to this discussion about Russia. Of course, my optimism is not national security prescription. Ukraine has obviously to prepare itself for the worst. And, you know, you cannot assume that there will be a positive outcome. You, you have to, to prepare yourself for, for new aggression. And I also agree with with Pavlo, that perhaps the south of Ukraine may be even more a more dangerous place than eastern Ukraine. But if you look at the at the history of foreign aggressions of Russia in 1979, when the Soviet Union intervened in Afghanistan, the the oil prices had just gone up after the second oil shock. And when then the Soviet Union left the um, uh, Afghanistan, the oil prices were down. And the Georgia intervention in August 2008 happened before the world uh, recession hit uh, Russia. And it was also at a time when Russia was in a relatively comfortable economic situation. And again, in 2014, the annexation of Crimea and start of the war in eastern Ukraine happened uh, before the drop of the um, of the oil price. So these are all sort of uh, histories that make me eventually then optimistic that the Kremlin will just be too much distracted with, with other issues inside the country and will have too many challenges and too many also financial needs so that it will simply not have the luxury anymore to sustain all these uh, territories and operations outside Russia. And that eventually we will end up, I, I think, with a with a more benevolent geopolitical situation for, for Ukraine. I also see the problem with the lacking trust. But uh, on the other hand, my, my feeling is that perhaps Ukraine is in a way better prepared for this situation because Ukrainians have during the 1990s, during 2008 and after 2014, sort of perhaps learned better than other countries to improvise and to get out of, um, of a very deep crisis. Remember that in 2008, the, the GDP of Ukraine fell 15%. That was 
one of the largest, if not the largest drop um, in GDP in the world during that crisis. And also, of course, 2014 was an extremely, and 2015 was an extremely difficult time. So my hope would be that these sort of situations have perhaps prepared Ukrainians and Ukrainian businesses and Ukrainian networks and organizations better for the kind of challenge that the country is facing now. Pavel, do you agree that Ukrainians have this adaptability that can make them better prepared? Generally, yes. I believe uh, that adaptability is uh, our strong side. Uh, but uh, we all know there are different uh, kinds of uh, adaptability. Some points uh, on adaptability are really good with us. Some, uh, unfortunately, not. Uh, so let's see what kind of adaptability will be needed uh, in the nearest future. It's not just about one bit of experience, one bit of flexibility. I mean, uh, it's all about critical uh, understanding how the world around us will keep changing. And it's about education. It's about being intelligent. Uh, so a lot of points uh, we need uh, to improve fundamentally. On your point on uh, on trust, and I believe it's really a good one. We lack the whole point of trust within our political system, and uh, I would go even further and say we lack the real trust within our society. It's something which is really a fundamental uh, problem uh, of our country, our society, our nation. And here we, we need to find a way how to inject this trust. Uh, trust in ourselves, in our ability to change uh, us, to change reality around us and not simply to uh, start uh, blaming uh, everybody everybody around something which is uh, which goes very deep but there is a different dimension of trust for me and uh, this dimension about trust towards uh, towards ukraine and now we have kind of catastrophic development here even if you cast a look uh, to what's happened uh, Yesterday, with this famous uh, story about, uh, you know, Biden-Poroshenko conversation, uh, for me, the level of uh, trust towards Ukraine, towards Ukrainian uh, system uh, had just lowered uh, to the level of trash. And uh, it's not about uh, authorities, it's about Ukraine. And here I see kind of challenge uh, we need uh, to tackle, uh, not just uh, in the immediate future, but uh, for the time to come. It's our common challenge. It's a sense of perception uh, about, uh, about Ukraine and uh, the way how, how we live, how we operate. Uh, it's going to hurt us uh, extremely, extremely deeply. So uh, I, I have a number of reasons to be really concerned on, on these developments. Uh, consolidation is something we are not good about. Uh, so we need uh, to, come, uh, to come up with something creative and completely different uh, from uh, what uh, we've done before. It's, uh, it's, it's really my point here, and it goes uh, probably beyond my 
capabilities uh, as, uh, as an expert, as foreign policy expert, and uh, goes to, uh, to a kind of uh, political reality. But somehow, I believe it's, it's really interlinked here. Thank you so much. Uh, my guests were Pavlo Klimkin, the former Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine from 2014-2019 and now head of the European Regional and Russian Studies Program of the Ukrainian Institute for the Future in Kiev, and Andrea Sumland, general editor of the book series Soviet and Post-Soviet Politics and Society at Ibidem Press in Stuttgart and the principal investigator at the Ukrainian Institute for the Future in Kiev. This was a podcast of ukraineworld.org, which we call Explaining Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. If you liked our podcast, please share with, with your audience and follow us on Facebook and Twitter and our website, ukraineworld.org. Stay with us. Music